Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer. During the school year, I would go to the Schwellengunks every weekend because I became obsessed with climbing. You know, I'd hitch rides, I'd do anything to get my 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old self to the Kunks. My name is Hugh Herr. I um, began climbing when I was seven years old. Every summer, my, my family would, uh, we would go on these extended road trips all over North America, um, often for three months from June to September, um, sometimes to Alaska, to the Canadian Rockies, Yosemite, all over the continental US. And it began with uh, sort of hiking and backpacking and fishing and then it progressed to peak bagging and then the walls got steeper and steeper um, and by the time i was eight nine ten years old um, we were doing vertical rock and ice work we being myself and my two brothers that's the slippery slope you guys you start with hiking and pretty soon you're doing a vertical waterfall ice and you're like oh geez how'd we get here that's right and then I, I started climbing really well when I was 11, 12. I started to become known um, within the gunks. Certainly the, the first ascents in terms of my age, but very quickly progressing in first ascents, you know, independent of age. Yeah. And so what year was that, roughly? Night, late 1970s. Doesn't that make you maybe the first climbing child prodigy in the country? I feel like there have been many since, but but does that make you maybe the first uh, child prodigy? Probably. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> probably correct. My climbing accident was in 1982 uh, when I was 17. My climbing partner at the time, Jeff Batzer, we, we set out uh, on a road trip. We drove from Pennsylvania to North Conway, New Hampshire. We had the objective to go up to Huntington's Ravine and climb the various ice gullies up there. And the, the next day we set out um, on, our, on our climb. Um, the, the weather was, was poor, but not horrendous. And, but as we progressed, the weather worsened. I, I free soloed um, the Odell's ice gully and just trailed a rope behind to belay my partner Jeff up. Jeff expressed an interest in going to the summit. And uh, so we huddled together out of the wind and decided to walk just, you know, a few minutes towards the summit and things, if the weather got worse, to, to turn around and descend. Even though it was just a few minutes, we walked into kind of this gully system into this rolling flat area where uh, in whiteout conditions, every direction was the same. The winds became very, very high, so high that we could barely stand. So we, we descended down to the tree line. At that point, we realized that we were off course, but it was too late to retrace our tracks um, because we would have certainly died near the summit given the extreme conditions. It had nothing to do with climbing. It was about being in a forest and really cold temperatures and really deep snows. And this feeling of being trapped and not being able to move, um, yeah, it's hor horrific. 
Today on Climbing Gold, we present a two-part series, Adapted, a story about human potential, generational friendships, and the power of climbing. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitzko Hall. This is Climbing Gold. Keep moving, get moving, stay moving. Lady, I wanna bleed, I wanna try hard, I wanna like, I wanna like do my shit. From the halls of MIT, in gyms across the country, and remote spires, there is a movement happening. I looked at the void below my knees and I saw potential, not loss. We're not here to inspire other people. If anything, we're here to inspire ourselves and maybe to inspire our own communities. This is a decades-long story about how people gather, adapt, and create to push climbing, our community, and maybe even humankind. Movement is life. Part one. Alone together. Something about climbing was different from the archery, from the canoeing, from the soccer and the track and field I was doing at home. Something about climbing stuck with me. One, because like no one's supposed to do it, right? Like humans aren't meant to rock climb. It's a silly thing. Our brains tell us no. And then especially someone with a disability. You know, this was not to date myself, but pre-internet, pre-everything. And so I didn't have anybody who looked like me to see that it was possible. And so, and I thought, I found that really cool. Like I kind of liked thinking I was the first, even though come later, I find out I wasn't at all the first, but in my little head, um, I was doing something groundbreaking that I wasn't supposed to be able to do. And that scared my mom. And that was really cool. Um, and so something about climbing just stuck beyond anything else I had tried. My name is Maureen Beck. I do go by Mo. It saves a syllable. I'm all about efficiency. <laughs> um, um, I currently live just outside of Denver, but I grew up in New England. And that's where I learned to climb. I went to a really, really amazing, really empowering Girl Scout camp. And we had like actual rocks to climb with these big, huge, granite glacial erratics. And I was about 12 years old. And, uh, you know, it was after archery or canoeing or whatever. It was time to go rock climbing. And I distinctly remember my counselor saying like, oh, we're not sure, Mo, how you can do this with one hand. So if you want to, you can sit this out. And being a 12-year-old kid, you know, I was just like, screw you, watch me. Um, and I don't think it went well. I kind of remember like falling and sliding and it being awful. Um, but I kind of faked it till I made it. Something about climbing seemed cool. Um, and so I started shoplifting magazines from the local bookstore that had climbing in them, like outside and stuff. So I kind of just read about it. And then like totally faked it. So I became a counselor at this Girl Scout camp to convince them I had more skills than I did and convince them to hire me as the head rock climbing counselor, even though I had zero business doing that. Uh, I, mean, I didn't kill anybody. Uh, but then in high school, I would like save my babysitting money up. Um, and I, I was lucky enough to grow up outside of Acadia National Park, like right next door. So I would save up my money and hire a guide every now and then because like I didn't know how to bust into like the community back then there. It was really small. Um, there wasn't a climbing gym to show up at. And I also like didn't have a lot of confidence. I was just like, well, I can't make friends who do this. And I don't even know if I can do this. I was going to pay someone to be my friend to take me. And then in college, I went to University of Vermont. One of the reasons I picked it was because climbing was like 20 minutes away. And the Adirondacks were an hour away. And Rumney was an hour and a half away. And that's kind of where I found sort of my own independence in climbing, I guess. Like finally, I could go on my own accord. Um, make friends and do it um, and learn. And I still faked it. Like I became the head climbing instructor for their outing club. And like, dude, all I knew how to do was build a top rope anchor off of trees. Like I had no actual skills. <laughs> like Somehow I convinced them to let me run the show. Um, I've learned since then, of course. But um, I don't know. I just, something about climbing stuck. And because it stuck, I was kind of willing to just force it into happening. I kind of like manifested it into, into working out for me. My identity 
was rock climbing. And I never even knew or acknowledged that I had a disability until I was like in my mid-20s. Like climbing was my first identity that I had. How, how did you avoid sort of taking, internalizing that identity growing up? I was born without my hand. And it's like a pretty major body part, I guess, to miss. Um, but I just like, I was raised like, yeah, it was different and it's okay to be different, but there's nothing wrong with you. And then I kind of started associating the word disability with a negative. Like, oh, that means there's something wrong with you. Like you're broken. I'm not broken. I'm just different. Um, and so I kind of, and then I did do a couple like disabled kids camps growing up and it was full of like the old church lady saviors who were just like, oh, you could do anything good for you. And I was like, no way, lady, I want to bleed. I want to try hard. I want to like, I want to like do my shit. And you're not letting me do that. You're creating a safe bubble wrapped world for disabled kids. And that's just what I associated with having disability was like you needed saving and you were broken. And that, that, that came later though, because also I couldn't Google like disabled climbing or like disabled anything. Like it was just it. Like now and then I'd hear like, oh yeah, I, I saw a guy with no feet climbing in North Conway. <laughs> and that those person, those people were talking about like you. Um, but there wasn't really a climbing community that I was exposed to in the disabled community until I was, yeah, early 20s. And then I met these people and I was like, oh, they own that label of being disabled and they rock it and they kick ass. So maybe I am one too. So we were forced to go down the Scully systems. Turns out we were in the Great Gulf region of Mount Washington, which is the wilderness side of Mount Washington. It's a really horrendous, difficult bushwhacking. The average depth of snow was to the waist. Sometimes it came to the chest. The snow actually was so deep, it, it met the base of the tree limbs. Um, so we were forced to, we were forced to travel down this river system um, because you'd literally have to tunnel through the snow uh, uh, away from the river. So because we're on the banks of this river, you're never quite sure whether you're on thin ice or on land. And so, of course, on occasion we fell in and it was minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit. So now we have wet feet when, when it's minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit and you're, you have leather boots that are wet, they become ice blocks. So basically we would go all night, you know, a marathon level of effort, and then we would diff, dig out uh, caves We'd find these house-sized granite boulders. We would dig out. So the roof of our cave was the granite and the base was snow. We threw in um, tree limbs to keep our bodies off the snow and basically hugged each other, shared body heat to keep our major, major organs functional. So with that technique, we could sleep probably two, day, two hours a day. So we did this for multiple days uh, until the hypothermia and frostbite was so severe that we could no longer walk. Um, we got very close. We got within a few miles of a roadway, but we we just simply couldn't walk anymore. At the, you know, close to the fourth day, we were both certain we were going to die. And we actually did things to accelerate um, the, the rate of death, so, which meant to us to stop hugging each other and sharing body heat to keep major organs alive. So we would just, you know, separate and lie adjacent one another, but not hugging in, in the snow cave. But when we saw the, the first human um, on snowshoes and we, we suddenly realized we're going to live and the elation of knowing that we were going to live when we were certain we we're going to die was just extraordinary. There was folks out 
just recreationally snowshoeing. Um, and they came across our human footprints and found us. And we were plucked from the mountain with a Huey helicopter and taken to Littleton Hospital, where we were treated for hypothermia and frostbite. And that is a harrowing tale. I, I kind of knew the broad strokes of that tale. I did not realize how extreme that was. How how many days was that for you guys? Uh, it was almost four days. Yeah, ev- every the entire climbing community were certain that we were we were dead. But there was this old timer that said, if they dig in, they might be still alive. <laughs> and he was right. We were taken to the, to the hospital and we were told that Albert Dow, um, a local climber in North Conway, New Hampshire, um, while, while searching for us in the search and rescue team, uh, he and Michael Hartrich, while descending Huntington's, um, were, was, they were hit by an avalanche. Um, Michael survived, and, but Albert did not. So that, that was just uh, profoundly devastating, disorienting. Uh, news to hear. I I felt such deep anguish and just uh, really blaming myself um, for the for the whole entire incident. And and then what happened to you personally? So we uh, Jeff and I we both had severe frostbite. My frostbite was focused uh, below the knee. There was a surgeon in Philadelphia who had an experimental procedure to treat frostbite. So he phoned my parents and said, hey, I will offer my services for free if your son's willing to be a medical guinea pig. So my parents said, yes, <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> we flew to Philly and uh, and entered this sequence of, of getting two surgeries per week for, for about two months. And the surgeries, he would try to rebuild the vascularization and pull away dead tissues and so on. But if it would have been a mild case of frostbite, it, it would have worked. But um, the rate the rate of cell death, um, the rate of gangrene growth was so aggressive. My case of frostbite was the worst that he had seen. So the, the technique did not work in the end. And my legs were amputated about about eight centimeters below the knee bilaterally. Was it clear f- for you from the get-go that that they were dead? I mean, it, it, for a young man, 17, who was a top climber, and all I thought about was extreme sport. It, it was very hard to admit that a, a major part of my body needs to be amputated away. So it, it took a lot of convincing, but I finally got there and actually asked the told the surgeon like enough is enough let's get rid of rid of the legs um yeah to the point where i was like get rid of them i don't want them they're they're no longer human they're no longer me we'll be back with more after the break well how did you start competing like what was the first comp you did yeah, I was I was doing able-bodied competitions, um, just mostly for fun. 
I mean, all for fun, right? Because I pretty much knew I was going to lose. The couple times I didn't come in dead last felt really cool. I was like, whoa, I beat some chick with two hands. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> and then like, you know, the after parties, there were college competitions. <laughs> it, was, it was for the good time. So like, yeah, my first comp that I did was probably in um, like 2007, which is a very long time ago now. <laughs> and then what was the what was the first paraclimbing competition you did? The first the first one I did was um, the Vail Mountain Games had an adaptive category in their citizens comp in 2013. How did how did it go? Did did you win? No, I didn't. Even, no, I didn't even podium. No, that was they just had a men's and women's. But also at that point, I never had a motivation to really get stronger. Um, and so I just kind of showed up. Like I've been climbing for a long time and I loved climbing, but I was like, oh, I'm just going to show up and see what happens. But it, it definitely was the start. I think if I hadn't done that comp, then when our, the first pair of climbing nationals happened in 2014, I probably would have been less inclined to go. But doing that silly little citizens comp at Vail kind of got me started. And that comp too was like one of my, maybe the third time, fourth time I climbed with like a group of people with disabilities. And that set the tone for para comps where it's like, not only are we competing against each other, but I think we had all 15 of us in a single three bedroom condo and somehow someone brought a keg, right? Like <laughs> paraclimbing comps are just a little different um, because you get to bond with people who have gone through something similar to you. Like, I think all climbing comps are cool and unique and all climbers are mostly nice to each other when they compete. Um, but para comps, you just have this extra bond that you just want to talk about and you want to, you want to work, you want to like go over, um, because there's like not many other people in the world who know what you've been through. And I think one of the reasons I loved rock climbing comps was because it wasn't like I was depending on the rest of the soccer team or anything. Um, it was just me. And I found that was really cool. And they're, they're all different, you know, they're all set different. So like, yeah, I ran track and did jumps and stuff. And not only was I not good at it, but it was the same thing every day. Whereas a climbing comp, you never know what you're going to get. Like, I don't know how people motivate to like run the mile race for their entire career because it's like the same thing, whereas climbing is always different. <laughs> Once they started splitting categories into like into categories where it's like, OK, I don't have to compete against everybody. I'm competing against other people like me. Um, turns out I was the best one handed girl climber in the world for for a hot minute. How much more competitive is it these days? Like just I mean, climbing's grown so much, but has it gotten harder? Yeah, my first nationals, I was number one out of one. And my first worlds, I was number one out of three. <laughs> but the last world championships I did, I was number two out of nine or 10, which is still small, but like from from three, that's pretty good growth. And then what was what was even cooler was because the community was growing, um, like I, I had to try harder every year. But then all of a sudden I wasn't winning, even among the one-handed women climbers. Like um, these people had heard about paraclimbing um, because us, I guess, OGs were putting ourselves out there. We were talking about it and word spread. And these girls started showing up and they were younger and stronger. And I would give them advice that the girl who's currently just crushing, um, I remember years ago, she like DM'd me on Instagram and was like, hey, like, what do you use to tape up your stump? I want to try competing. And I gave her advice and I was like, in the back of my head, I was like, yeah, yeah, good luck. I'm the best. And then she showed up and kicked my ass. And it was so, but, um, and that's what I get for helping strangers. <laughs> but it's been so rewarding. Like I used to feel like I have to show up to competitions. Otherwise there won't be enough people, right? Nationals this year was not a give me. Like I did win, but you know, our, our community still relatively knew that there's dark horses. I'm just like, who's that one-handed chick just like floating the quality route? What the hell? <laughs> so... 
So it's always a little spicy. Um, and now I'm just like, it doesn't need me anymore. Like they're stronger, they're better. Um, there's more of us and it, it doesn't rely on me anymore. And if I had some small part in growing that community, then that's way cooler than any of the wins. And I do feel like it's my time to move on. Number one, because my heart and passion now lies in, in Alpine expeditions and you cannot do both. I've tried, uh, you cannot train for both at once. And then I think it was the last, one of the last World Cups I did. I was like back in the, you, they line you up for podium and I placed third, I think. And I was talking with the like two girls who were also on the podium. One was French, one's Italian. And they're like, oh, how old are you? How old are you? And I was like, oh yeah, I'm like 34 at the time. And they're just like, oh, you're so old. You don't look it. And I was like, okay, it's time for me to move on. <laughs> And my rehabilitation doctor, when I asked him, what would I be able to do with my new body? He said, what do you want, want to do with your, your body? And I said, well, I want to I wanna cycle. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to drive a car. And I, I most certainly want to return to mountain climbing. And he, without hesitation, said, you won't be able to ride your bicycle. You'll be able to drive a car, but with hand controls. And I'm afraid there's no way you can return to mountain climbing. And I sobbed for 24 hours because climbing was my life. It was, I, I couldn't imagine life without climbing. And then I, after about 24 hours of crying, I, I realized that A, the doctor doesn't know me. And he also didn't seem to understand technology, that technology isn't invariant. There's this thing called invention and innovation like technology improves with time so what's if it's not possible today it'll certainly be possible tomorrow so i came out of this like 24 hours of tantrums and crying and with that realization that this guy is incorrect he has <laughs> to be incorrect <laughs> and, and you were you were still 17 at that point correct yeah you were just like, F this doctor, I'll show him. Yeah, classic. Exactly. So uh, so I'm in the rehabilitation center. Um, I'm fitted with my first pair of artificial limbs and they're, they're, they're made of plaster Paris. And they tell me like, don't put full body weight on the legs or they'll crack. <laughs> um, the first weekend, they they didn't allow me to take my legs home. So I went home for the weekend, just in the wheelchair. They knew I was crazy because I was bringing, I was telling my parents, bring my rock climbing shoes. Like we need to fit them on the artificial foot. So I would bring them into the clinic and say, could you, could you get the prosthetic foot into this like uh, rock, rock shoe? And they were like, what? So the second weekend they allowed me to take my legs home and that's when I went climbing. <laughs> And I, I was, I could barely get to the base of the cliff because, you know, it was like I was an infant. So I could easily be quadrupedal, but being bipedal was very, very hard. So I kind of, you know, like a quadruped, like on all fours, got to the base. And, and suddenly when I was, when I was vertical climbing, I just felt at home. I just felt at peace. And I was reminded of how, how much joy climbing gave me um you know be, before the accident i was climbing 13a or something 
And that that first first weekend, I was as a five nine or something, but <laughs> I didn't care. It was just it felt extraordinary to be in the vertical world again. That's crazy. You were climbing two weeks after you, you entered rehab when a doctor says you're never going to climb again. I mean, right. Talk about being way off in one's predictions. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I quickly realized that I had an opportunity that the from my amputation level down, I could design whatever's in that empty space. I looked at the void below my knees and I, and I saw potential in that loss. You know, it's kind of like a, a writer views a blank sheet of paper as potential, like an incredible story, a narrative could take place on that blank sheet. And that, that shift in, in, in thinking about my circumstance, thinking about my new body uh, was pivotal because it got me into the machine shop. It got me inventing. It got me to ask the question, if you could just design climbing legs, what would they look like? Or you, one doesn't have to follow biology. And w- were you doing this in a vacuum or were there other amputees that you could learn from or talk to? Or, you know, were there other people on the same path or did you feel like you were doing this alone? I felt I was doing it completely alone. I'm not sure there was anyone else in the world that had faced the same questions. And I suppose maybe part of that is just the fact that it's the it's the early 80s and exactly. I don't know, communication is less, technology is less, and the fact that you're 17 years old, you're probably just less connected to the broader world of science and right. and technology. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's crazy. I've always had a drive for comps, but at the same time, I was kind of between hard sport climbing and comps. I was like, there's something coming next, and I don't know what it is. I just, I feel like there's something bigger out there. And of course, I feel like the classic career progression for a climber is like gym, sport, alpine. Like, that's kind of <laughs> how it works. Um, and I just didn't think I was going to be any different. But I also didn't seek it out because it was big. It was new. It was scary. I wasn't really a trad climber. I didn't really do stuff in the mountains. And so while I was kind of curious about it, I wasn't going to put myself out there and do it. It took Jim, this stranger from across the country, from a different generation, just DMing me on Facebook, being like, hey, I just lost my leg. I have this dream climb I want to do. I would love to do it with another disabled person. Like, do you want to come? My name is uh, Jim Ewing, and uh, I'm a climber. I've been a climber for, uh, seems like, a couple hundred years. Um, <laughs> I first started climbing back in the late 70s. And you've uh, been climbing since uh, before there were rocks. Like yeah. way back when. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, can you talk about the Lotus Flower Tower? Like, <laughs> like I mean, because that's about as, as, as mega as a trip like that gets. Lotus Flower Tower is in uh, Nahani National Park, which is in the Northwest Territories of Canada. And in an amazing place in the Cirque of the Unclimbables. Just amazing big spires kind of all around. And it's this 2,000 foot 18 pitch climb um, in the Northwest Territories of Canada. So, like north of the Yukon. Um, so, like middle, actual, legit middle of nowhere, edge of Arctic Circle. It's, it's one of the, um, the you know, so called 50 classic climbs of, of North America. 
The reason that Jim had been dreaming of it since he was a kid was because it's in this coffee table book called 50 Classic Climbs in North America. Um, and now that I've done about four or five of them, I think they're actually all tross. Like it was just a, a route that was kind of always on my list of something like, oh yeah, I definitely want to go do that someday. Not only is it a big climb that was all kind of scary right out trad on questionable rock, it's also in the middle of nowhere. You're dropped off by a helicopter for three weeks, whatever. The weather's heinous. You know, after, after my accident and kind of near-death experience and realizing that I can climb again after amputation, I was like, well, like what, what sort of dream trips have I not gone on that I, that I really, I've wanted to do for a long time. And that was, that was one of them. Um, so it was just like everything I hadn't done put into one month long trip. I think I reached out to her through Facebook and, um, you know, the first thing was, you know, Hey, the Lotus flower tower, blah, 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 blah. And I think I sent her the, the mountain project link or she sent it back and she was like this one. I said, yes. And she just said, I'm in. Even though it was big and scary, I was just like, sure, why not? Like my professional career was taking off. I was at a point where I could take off like six months to like do this trip. So I was just like, let's do it. Let's find out. We made uh, arrangements to go climbing in uh, Red Rocks. So I had never met Mo in person. I picked her up at the airport. We drove out to uh, Red Rocks and went on Birdland. Birdland's, of course, really popular, and there's like lots of climbers going up and down it. Mo was leading a pitch. Guy coming down sees that she's missing a hand, and he's like, he asks her, like, what, what happened? What happened to your hand? And without even looking up at the guy, Mo just said, alligators. And I was like, cool, we're gonna get along just fine. So, <laughs> so the whole rest of that trip, we were joking that we were we were in Vegas for the. Uh, the Alligator Survivor Support uh, Convention, or the Ask Convention. We'll be back with more after the break. What were your first forays into new legs? Like, what did you make? I was uh, I was obsessed with weight, um, for one, because I. Of course, I realized that the lighter my legs would become, the stronger I would I would be in the vertical world. The more pull-ups I could do, and so on. That's that's a real uh, climber's mentality too. A yeah, prosthetic, yeah. <laughs> like it's yeah. all strength to weight ratio. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's so funny. I, you know, my in the end, my climbing limbs weighed that of a tennis racket um, made of carbon composite and much, much less than flesh and bone. You know, our the biological body has the density of water. So if you want to imagine how how heavy your leg would be, imagine that volume, you yeah. know, as water. So a, a limb weighs a lot. So you can imagine replacing that with carbon fiber. Um, I had a really incredible weight advantage. <laughs> and then the foot, you know, I was I, I heard these tales growing up that one reason Henry Barber was such an incredible climber is that he had he had short little feet and that enabled him to get his center mass right over his feet even though the walls quite vertical hmm. so so you made a henry barber foot yeah but even even more extreme it was the length of a baby's foot I eventually developed a foot where i could stand on just a, a dime's edge um, with ease and then i was like a foot for ice climbing 
you know, there's no boot. You have a welded pylon going right into the plate that's that's attached to the the crampon and all at the right optimal angles. Um, yeah, the crampon feet, essentially becomes your foot, huh? Exactly. Right. Feet for crack climbing. Um, these like wedges that I could go into fingertip cracks with my feet and so on. So, uh, you know, I, I explored height. And how unusual was it? I mean, how how tall could you get? How short? Like, you know, what were the variations, the, the range of variation that you could have? Yeah, so I can be as short as just over four feet, four or five or something. And I, I could be as tall as I want. <laughs> I explored eight feet tall. Um, <laughs> and, and was that amazing? It's it's amazing for boulder problems. <laughs> but that's about it. Yeah, you just it. freaking grab, <laughs> you grab the right. top and you mantle. That's right. <laughs> that's, like, that's, that's right. Yeah. Huh. Often being really tall is a disadvantage in climbing. Hmm. Now, I, I could make myself a little shorter and have a fantastic ape index, which is actually um, a, a more of a sweet spot than, than being really tall. I've gone from in the high four foot, almost five feet as the <laughs> low, low end too. You know, in the Schwalengunks, you have these climbs where you, you climb out one overhang and you get to a, a vertical section that's about eight feet and then there's another overhang. And you have to traverse on top of one overhang, but below the second overhang. So it's you get in these positions where you're completely cramped. So something like that, yeah, just over five feet is a huge advantage. <laughs> so it just depends on the rock moves. And and how adjustable were your legs? Is that something that you could change, uh, you Easily. know, pitch by pitch? Yeah, just with an Allen wrench. So like in one day of cragging, you could do one pitch being eight feet tall and one pitch being five feet tall. Yeah. All I need is a tiny ledge and I can change my height. I can ch change from a crack foot to an edging foot to a smearing foot to crampons. Um, yeah, it's very simple. So you could conceivably do that mid pitch. Absolutely. If there's a good stance. Absolutely. I mean, I got to say, I can see why people call it cheating. <laughs> if if mid-pitch, you suddenly gain three feet of height. You're like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> but Alex, it, it was a balance between advantage and disadvantage. And, and through that balance, I was able to climb at a top level. So what are the disadvantages? The disadvantages are, but the prosthesis, uh, I'm, in, I'm in a socket. It's like a cup that goes around my residuum. And it has to come up in the back posterior wall very, very high. So I'm not able to flex my knee more than 90 degrees. So high stepping is really, really hard. Um, friction is nearly impossible. You know, on a slab, I can I might be able to do five, six, but it's it's a struggle. You either have this nice balance between advantage and disadvantage, or you know, profound levels of disadvantage. When did you meet Hugh? So I met Hugh, I think, in maybe like 1983 or 84, um, after he had his accident on Mount Washington. Like, I, I was still in high school when his accident all went down. But I'd already been climbing in 
the North Conway area for a few years because once I got my driver's license, um, it was kind of, I gave up high school sports and regular team sports and just was going to the crags every chance I got. Hugh's been referred to as the first climbing prodigy in the U.S. I mean, did you know his reputation? Did you know about his climbing at the time? Back then, the the climbing media literature was a little more <laughs> sparse, you know? Yeah. Hard yeah, to scanned. come by. Yeah. Yeah. And it, so everything was um, really like word of mouth, you know, just the, the rumor mills traveling through the climbing circles. And, uh, you know, I'd heard about this kid who was just doing rad things down at the gunks. Um, and I hadn't been to the gunks, so I didn't know that much about what was going on. But I, and I've actually never asked Hugh this directly, but there used to be this legend, this myth that he climbed super crack at the gunks with swim fins. Like he had saw, <laughs> he had sawed off the, the forefoot part of the, the fins and then used those to wedge them into the cracks. You know, Hugh and I were, we were roommates briefly at a, at a, really shitty chalet that we kind of called the the roach motel it had literal roaches which i didn't even know existed in new england but i saw firsthand what he would go through just to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night like it's you don't just pop out of bed and jump into your legs and waddle off to the bathroom it's crawling or mantling onto the toilet or you know it was it's not a super easy life being an amputee like it's it's not that bad, but there's some huge inconveniences that uh, we experience that uh, intact people don't experience. You know, when you met Hugh as a young man, you know, young climbing prodigy, did you ever think that he would be running a team of grad students at MIT? Um, not, not exactly. Uh, in fact, when he kind of, well, when he left North Conway, he kind of, he traveled the country a bunch and, you know, did the... Uh, city park at index and you know kind of traveled around upping the standards quite a bit um not just for amputees but for all climbers like just establishing hard fucking climbs once you started to see the possibility of what you could do with the prosthetics you know how did you choose projects like what you know, I mean, the sky's the limit. Like, what would you get into? It really, my interests in climbing weren't affected by, uh, you know, having biological or synthetic limbs. It really, I really stayed on track. So what what I really enjoyed doing is hard rock. And I specialized in routes that have very poor gear. But my specialty is climbs that are rated X. You know, where you're hanging on for dear life and putting in these tiny little you know wedges into the crack which are probably most certainly going to pull out so i did i did uh condemned man and the schwellengunks it's like 12 plus and really really dangerous stage fright in, in north conway liquid sky yeah, a, few, a few of these routes that were that are rated x today and these were all done with synthetic legs most of them yeah there's a climb called sticky bun power in sky top at the gunks that's very dangerous that i first i did the first free ascent with biological limbs and then i did it again with synthetic limbs uh, and the second time i did it direct your climbing level continued to improve despite the loss of your legs 
Yeah, I, I definitely climbed at a more advanced level with artificial limbs than I did with biological limbs. Um, why is that? I mean, I trained a lot harder. And, and some of that's probably coming of age too, right? I mean, you're in your Correct. early 20s, you would have been strong as strong as hell. Exactly. And I and, and I I was a full-time climber where before I had to deal with things, this thing called high school, right? <laughs> uh, so cumbersome. Don't let that go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Can you tell us about City Park? Because in the 1980s, that was one of the hardest tragedies in the country. Yeah, I, I love crack climbing. It's it's one of the types of climbings that I, I've always trained for and excelled at. Yeah, so City Park is in Washington State. I don't know what it's rated, 13C or something. Todd Skinner did the first ascent, and I watched him do it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I came back, I think, a year later and did the second ascent. Um, with these cra crazy feet. Um, when he did the first ascent, that was already after the accident. You were already... Correct. Yeah. And the, the, these feet only work when, the, you, when they penetrate a crack. They're not able to stand on anything. Like you can barely <laughs> stand on a ledge. Like you can't even stand on a, hand, a foothold that's an inch, inch across. So you can't smear, you can't edge. So it was this like hybrid where i could do one thing well but i could i couldn't do anything else whatsoever <laughs> not not particularly versatile feet and so how does that feel yeah. getting up to city crack which has like a isn't it like a 510 phase pitch to get up to the crack basically yeah there's a there's a short section yeah it was it was it was the crux actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're basically campusing a 510 pitch to get up to the exactly. 513 finger crack and then then you exactly. felt comfortable exactly and then I was I, I was accused of cheating and something in climbing the magazine. Someone wrote that my second accent accent shouldn't be recognized as a real ascent, and it was a sort of a comical set of events afterwards. <laughs> Did that bother you? Yeah, it's interesting. So when, when my limbs are amputated, you could imagine what society projected onto me. You know, society said, "Hugh, you were this top athlete." You know, now that your biological limbs have been removed, your life is over. You're a crippled. And that that attitude of your life is over, you're weak and pathetic, continued until I designed my own limbs and I started climbing better than everyone else. The moment that happened, a switch was reset and it went from you're courageous as a disabled person, whatever that means, to you're a threat and you're cheating. Uh, overnight, it's, it's really remarkable. When I first was accused of cheating, it was such a beautiful melody to my ears because I really despised being considered less than, less than human, weak, unattractive, powerless, crippled. So I I would laugh my ass off when people would accuse me of cheating. Because it was it was like the most profound compliment in terms of an athlete with with a very unusual body. Next time on Climbing Gold. I was in a pretty bad way and 
you know, Hugh, I think, like he wanted to help me somehow, or he knew that he had to do something. All of us are on this gradient of ability, and all of us are experiencing a different level of ability at different moments in our lives. My definition of cyborg is a human-machine interaction where the biological brain can put information into the the worn robot or electromechanics, and the computers, the synthetic computers on the robot can also put information into the biological brain. I used to think that once I ticked a certain grade or, or did something, I'd be like, cool, now I know what the max is. Um, and I just, now I'm like, I'll never know what the max is, I don't think. Not, not for me, not, not for us. Thank you, Hugh, Mo, and Jim, for sharing your story. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was produced, written, and edited by Marco Seiler Gonzalez and me, Fitzka Hall. Additional editing, mixing, and mastering by Evan Phillips. Music today by Baleen, Sunshape, Joey Cantor, and Drexler. Tracks are courtesy of Track Club. Lauren Delani Miller is our producer. Our social media and YouTube producer is Skylar Perwins. Our executive producers for ArcSR Sports are Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy, and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Call for Duct Tape Then Beer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>